Namaste. All the worship this morning is coming from Psalm 103, starting at verse 17. We hear these words from our God. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. To those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Receive now the greeting of our God as we have received His call to gather into His presence for worship. Receive now this gracious word. Congregation of the Lord, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we take our Bibles now and open up to the book of 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this morning we will consider the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 17 together. Now, the very word of our God. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Hezekiah, in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Goth whose height was six cubits in a span He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against them and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please pray. 
pray with me now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know the rest of the story. We know the next two words are, Now David. But yet we stopped here at verse 11, and we have much to glean from your word. And so we pray that you would indeed give us ears to hear what your Spirit has for us this day. That we may see and hear our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. And amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what a wonderful way to begin one of the greatest stories really in the history of mankind. The story of David versus Goliath. It has become ingrained in our in our very own culture that we speak of. You will hear people use these types of idioms of conquering your own giants in your life, or boy, he's the Goliath of a man. Meaning he's he's tall. But really not as tall as Goliath. In fact, one of my colleagues at the seminary talks about seeing a, a, a seminary lecture or a God-given chapel, and he was 7'2", seven, 7'3", seven, and he was on David and Goliath, and he says, and Goliath stood right about here. I mean, wasn't, well, he's taller than that, as we'll see here in just a moment. But we still think of that. Wow, what a Goliath of a man. And as we step into the beginning of this passage, just verses 1 through 11, we must remember that it's not just a story. It's not just a story that we tell our kids to to boost them up in order to trust in God. That's important. But we must remember that it's history. That it is history. In other words, we must remember that David... As the shepherd boy took on a giant, it happened. This happened. He took on a giant with a sling and a stone. And he was victorious. Why? Well, the Bible says because God was with him. Because God was with him. And so as we approach this passage, we must be aware of this wonderful reality that David is a type of Christ. Yes, that's the first couple of words there in verse 12. We're not going to go there. Now David, he's coming. You're introduced to him in chapter 16. You're even introduced to him way before that in the Bible in Ruth chapter 4. Now David is coming. And that David is a type of Christ. But this Goliath that we're introduced to here this morning, well, he's a different type. He's a type of an antichrist. An anti-God. He's the enemy. You see, God reveals the stage for the showdown between David and Goliath. This is the battle of champions. The type of Christ versus the type of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman versus the seed of Satan. As we examine this, let's first consider that the battlefield is drawn. The battle lines are drawn. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3, where this 
battleground with is over a, a valley. There's two mountains. And we're immediately struck by the nature of conflict. There are two sides in a conflict. And this has been the case since the fall of man. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Consider again those couple of verses right there. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And we see where they were gathered. And notice they're in an area, Sukkot, which belongs to Judah. They are encamped there. And just a couple of observational points here which respect to this verse. First, notice the people of Israel have been invaded. That's what that means. They're already in the land of Judah. They're, they've been invaded. An army, an invading army, has made their way into Judah, and they've, they've pitched their tents. They are there, and they are ready for war. The Philistines are in Judah. Secondly, as I've said, notice, they are ready for war. They have invaded unjustly. They have no right to go into this land. It's not their country. And they have invaded unjustly in order to expand their territory. And we will see Goliath's speech here in just a moment, which is then not only to expand their territory, but then to bring in work labor. They are there to enslave the Israelites into forced labor. history of the church is this happening well let's keep in mind this is not very far from the Philistines fighting Samson Samson and Samuel were, were contemporaries one being the older the other one being the younger around the same time period this is the same group of Philistines we're not talking about oh this was generations later no 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 the people of God would have remembered the hero Samson and the Philistines would have remembered what Samson did to them. People remember. And so here they are. The Philistines are back. And they're wanting to put Israel back under the yoke of their enslavement. Samson fought them. And here they are again. And we see in verses 2 and 3. They're there, ready for war. The two camps. Saul has gathered the army of the Lord, the soldiers of Israel, and they are prepared to make war. And you have the camp of the Israelites there in the valley of Elah, and the Philistines are just on the opposite side of the valley, on their mountain, prepared to make war against the people of God. So here we have the positioning of the two armies. And we just take a moment. Let's take a moment now and just recognize just with these first three verses that this is uh, typical, really, of the whole Bible. Consider here, just for a moment, the theology that this passage presents to us. From the moment God announced 
the gospel in Genesis 3.15, there was an establishment, uh, what we could call an antithesis, a conflict between the seed of the serpent on the one hand, I don't mean to poke to this group over here, but I'm just going to, I'm going to use, just use this hand because it seems like it's to the left, right? When I, when I, it's all, and then the seed of the woman over here. Not that this group's any more holy than this group. So, but you get the idea. There's this antithesis. This conflict. This war. This enmity, which is the word that's used there in Genesis 3.15, between the two groups of people. And it's played out throughout history. You don't, you don't go very far in the Bible until you see it. What does this enmity bring about? It brings about death through murder. Cain and Abel. It brings about immorality. Ham versus Shem. It brings about division and conflict. Ishmael and Isaac. It splits brothers apart. Esau and Jacob. nations, Egypt and Israel. It brings about destruction, the Canaanites and the Israelites. And here we see it, center stage in our passage. Once again, two camps, the Antichrist camp versus God's people. The one encroaching in the, the, the gates of the enemy trying to expound their territory into the land that God has given Israel, here they are, once again, ready to attack. On the offensive. This conflict continues throughout Scripture, leading us even to the cross with Jesus Christ. Christ took on the world at that moment and we see what happens. He's victorious. He's victorious. Yet, notice where we are today. The conflict is still here, isn't it? Christ is victorious, but yet, it's the enemy of the church is still fighting a losing battle. Like they, they, didn't, they didn't get the memo. They didn't get the press release. You, you lost. You lost at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. He's not there. Oh, oh, just say his disciples took him. That doesn't work. Well, give him some money and, and, and spread this rumor. It's been around since this day. Matthew 28 says that. Yet notice the conflict still here. The battle lines are still drawn. You have on one side those who, need, who kneel to Christ because He is their Lord and Savior. And on the other side you have those that want Christ to kneel to them. No. There's coming a day where there won't be any more antithesis. Where there won't be any more enmity. There's coming a day where the battle that is already won will be realized and we'll see it. We'll participate in that victorious parade that is our Christ's return. We'll be there. There's coming a day where every knee will bow. Some will be forced to bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That day is coming. The Christian will do this willingly. We have the desire right now to come to Jesus 
and say, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Thank you for such a salvation. For what you've done. For overcoming the world. For conquering my flesh. For giving me your word and your spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. You see, Long, the enmity is harsh, and at times today it seems that the enemies of Christ's church may win. We must recognize there's a victor nonetheless. There's a victor. He's already won. And they're simply fighting a losing battle. I'll consider this a bit more in just a moment, but we get back to verses 4 through 11 now with the challenge of the champions. You see, we're introduced in 4 through 11 to the Philistine champion, Goliath of Goth. Consider the way the Bible describes him in his appearance in verses 4 through 7. You have the description of his height, his, his armor. Here comes the the champion of the Philistines. And this part of our passage just amazes me as to how accurate it is in describing ancient warfare. It's it's amazing. Instead of of crashing the armies into one another and hoping that we'll be able to recognize who the victor is, sometimes in the ancient world, kings would put forth champions and say, we'll have our champion fight your champion and whoever wins will determine who is the victory so that we don't have all this bloodshed. Now you can find good movies that will actually portray that pretty well, uh, but then you also have the Bible that's doing it right here. The Bible does it. This is what Goliath is doing. He's the champion of the Philistines. And pay close attention to the size of this man. Six cubits in a span. (coughs) The best estimation is he's nine foot eight inches. What an offensive lineman. (laughs) Taking care of the blind side. That'd be great, wouldn't it? I don't know if he would go to Nebraska, but uh, well, I don't know. He's still, anyway. (laughs) That's tall. That's, I mean, that's, that's more than just having to duck under a door. That's having to redesign doors. That's tall. This is why he's called a giant. He's a giant of a man. This massive man comes out towering over the entire army. Just imagine, you see the battle lines and all of a sudden it starts to part and you see Goliath before he gets to the front. It's like, wow. And he keeps on, he keeps on getting bigger as he gets closer because that's the way he works, vision. Anyway. It's just the way. So as he approaches, he's massive. He's massive. And the Israelites, not, not, not so massive. He's ready for battle. That's how the Bible describes it. You see, we must recognize this man is battle ready and probably even battle tested. He's seen conflict before. He has the weapons of war. He has the armament 
for battle. He is prepared to destroy the people of God. This lone figure represents here the enemies of God. And he's not even spoken yet, and yet we still feel, as we read the description, the intimidation that must have been felt just with the presence of this massive man. The real question the people of God should be asking themselves is, uh, is that it? You don't have any more? This is it? You come to us, you invade our land with him? He's puny. Have you met our God? you remember Samson? Do you not recall what he did? You dare approach us with this little man? Our God is bigger. Our God is stronger. Where's David? Take care of this little guy. No, 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 no. Don't worry about a sword. Just do what you did to the bear. Just do what you did to the lion. Show that our God is mighty. There's more. We want the whole army. Notice what Goliath says in verses 8 through 11. He stands there. And he shouts with a loud voice. <laughs> the audacity this man has to say, to question them as to why they've brought their army to them. They've done the invasion. Israel has a right to defend themselves. Why have you come out and lined up for battle against us? You see, first of all, notice what his claim there is. That they're right where they should be. He's questioning the people. Why are you even doing this? And then notice what he calls them. Servants of Saul. Don't, don't, don't read over that. In fact, that's really what the people wanted. When they said, we want to have a king like the nations, this heathen man who has a king is telling them, this is what it means to have a king like us. Servants of Saul. Servants of Saul. And it's belittling to them because who are they really supposed to be serving? God. Servants of the Most High. But secondly, notice he tells them. He tells them what to do. Here's how, here's how this is going to play out. Right? Like, he, like he has the authority. Recognize that. Here, here's what we're going to do. Pick your champion. If he wins, we'll become your slaves. But recognize, we all know the story. You go to the end. This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. David wins, and what do they do? Okay, we're your slaves. No! They run away! And this tells us the unbeliever's not going to keep his word. I mean, <laughs> they're not going to want to do that. Notice, that was the condition. That was the agreement. Their champion came out, took off his head, held it up for everybody to see, and what did they do? They ran away. Ran away. But notice... If the opposite had happened, that's the third thing here, if the opposite outcome had come true, well, guess what? Israel had been slaves once again under the yoke and bondage of the Philistines. Just like in Egypt, just like with the other nations in the book of Judges, so too here with the Philistines. And we need to recognize this does eventually happen. There's 
Babylon's coming, Persia, Greece, even Rome, by the time you get to the Gospels. But we need to understand one thing. David is coming. And with David comes that type of who is the true Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. The one who shows up in Bethlehem and then his shoulders show up and scare a bunch of shepherds. And what do they have to say, those, those angels? Not a, not, a, not a choir. It was a host. Our commander was just born in Bethlehem. Yeah, I'd be afraid too. That's who David represents. Notice also here, David, Goliath, excuse me, Goliath defies the armies of Israel. Later in this same chapter, he will curse God. And of course, we'll see, he'll die for it. But he'll curse God. This should have caused every single, you could tell none of these soldiers from Tennessee, because this would have caused every soldier to be spitting mad, ready to fight, saying, well, I don't care where it is, just tell me where the fight is. We heard what he said. Where do we go? When do we line up? He just cursed God. But instead we get to see something else, don't we? Look at Saul's and Israel's response there. In verse 11. We haven't even got to Goliath's further speeches. We just have this one. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. How quickly have they forgotten Samson? Or even for that matter, what Saul's already done and accomplished, but then you got Samson. How quickly have they forgotten Gideon? How quickly have they forgotten Joshua and the conquest? How quickly have they forgotten Moses leading them out of Egypt? See, how quickly have they forgotten that God is mightier than this giant? And yet, this is an entire army. (coughs) Hundreds of men versus one giant. Think of Joshua and Caleb. (laughs) The other ten... They were they're giants in them lands. And Joshua goes, Yeah, our God's bigger. No problem. And they're the only two that make it in. How quickly the people have forgotten. This army's unwilling to charge this brute of a man and kill him right where he stood. And what this brings to light is the nature, the nature of the fear of man. The fear of man. See, the fear of man, it, it'll paralyze people. It'll stop us dead in our tracks. Fear is a dangerous enemy in God's, among God's people. The fear of man. You see, instead of fearing God, who is the creator of such men, we tend to fear man more than God. 
that's the direction we go sometimes. And this leads us to unproductivity. It leads us to many other harsh consequences and sin and various other things because we, we fear man. Oh, I'm afraid of what he's going to say if I approach him. Or I'm afraid of what they're going to do if I say this. It's fear. You see, some people, when faced with fear, they flee for their lives, which you'll see with the Philistines as soon as David stands victorious as God's man. They're going to run for the hills. Some of them couldn't run fast enough. They're going to run. Others freeze like these Israelites are doing right now. Right? They, they become unable to function, unable to move. They're, they play possum. They're, whoop, we're done. Frozen in place. Petrified with fear. Not able to glorify God in the task before them because fear has left them standing still. While others, when faced with a challenge like this, others fight and don't back down. This is what David does. He hears it. <laughs> he says, where's my sling? He stands up against the enemies of God with just the weapons of a shepherd boy. As we come to a close, I just want to consider some further points here of application. The fear of God will not lead us to be frozen in our in our in our very our very places, but rather the fear of God will provide for us wisdom to know how to handle certain situations in life. Like Paul in Damascus, he knew it was at that time better to flee. In Ephesus, he wanted to go in and deal with the mob. But instead, he was encouraged by the elders of the church to step away. Let us handle this. Wisdom does tell us sometimes it's better to walk away to live and see another day. You see, we must recognize the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of right application of what situations in life we find ourselves in. And the knowledge of the Holy One, knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, and what Christ can do, brings then understanding in how we handle life's challenges. So let's consider this passage in light of the understanding that we have in Christ, right? We've said Christ is victorious over our enemies. He's the seed of the woman. He has come and He has conquered Satan, the world, the flesh, and even death. Our enemies. Satan tried to get him, but failed. There he was in the wilderness. The last ditch effort for Satan was the cross. Couldn't get him in the wilderness. Couldn't get him in the garden. Time to get him at the cross. And it failed. It blew up in his face like a kid playing with fireworks.
you have the world. They thought they had him locked down in the tomb, but they failed. The guards standing outside when Jesus comes walking out without any help. Right? No need for help. Came walking out on his own, and what happened? They were paralyzed. That's what the Bible says with fear. Soldiers, battle tested men, petrified because Christ just walked out of the tomb. The flesh. Christ is victorious over the flesh. He not once succumbs to temptation. You see, the people even bring a woman caught in adultery in order to tempt Jesus towards lust. But no, this scantily dressed woman doesn't even do it. He remains perfect and pure. Our true Savior, even the flesh, succumbs to Christ. He's victorious. Death could not keep him down. Death could not win. Jesus is now Lord and has ever been Lord. Always been Lord over death. He holds the keys of Hades and death in his hands. He is the master of death. This is who we serve. This is our God. You see, this is then what he promises to us. He gives to us. When we turn to him, he provides for us forgiveness of sins. An everlasting life. Trusting in him, looking to his work, we have all that we need to find victory in this life. You see, the battle lines have been drawn. Christ is our champion. We are not the champions. No matter how cool a song that is. We are not the champions. Christ is. Christ is the champion. See, that's, that's the point. This is what David points us to. David points us to the one who fights for us against those enemies that we cannot overcome. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We can't sucker punch death. We can't hit the flesh from behind. We can't shock the world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, as Paul would point out. And so we must turn to the one who has overcome all, who has conquered all. We turn to Jesus. He's our champion. He's our victor. And as we continue to face challenges, even in this day, may we always seek to turn to Him. Amen. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have had now to take your word, 
to open it up and to hear from our Savior, our champion, Jesus Christ. May we continue to look to Him this day, not only as our Savior and Lord, but also as the one who has gone before us and has cleared the path for us that we can just continue to walk by Your Spirit and Word on to the new heavens and the new earth. And we look forward to that day where our champion, our King of kings and Lord of lords returns with victory in his wake to take us into that eternal rest with him. We look forward to that. In Jesus' name.